the depth of the human condition, the darkness of the heart, that I want to encourage you, the saints, this morning to be mindful of yourself uh, as you walk with the Lord. Be mindful of what seems to be of no real problem. A simple dabbling here or a dabbling there. A giving in over here and a giving in over there. I want to just encourage you of a repentant heart. An awareness about your own tendencies. A mindfulness about the depth of sin. What we're about to walk through in Revelation 16 is an outcome for the ungodly, those who have spurned the gospel of Christ, those who in this great day of wrath have already up to that point so committed themselves in a different direction, there is no turning back. They see the pathway to freedom. as only being found through killing God. I want to encourage you that the challenge isn't that it's going to occur some point punctiliar in an event that's isolated, but that those themes are present now. They're just as violent, just more subtle. To get rid of God and finally be free. And to the saint, we, we don't speak in that language. We just don't, by grace, we would not speak that way of the Lord. But the subtlety of our action, thinking that the consequence isn't as big, or that I can in some way handle sin and not be burned. Can a man carry coals in hot coals upon his chest and not be burned? This is the book of Proverbs. So I want to encourage you as we look at the final outcome of a committedness to sin and ungodliness, encourage likewise the saints how dark and deceptive and dangerous is sin, even to dabble in it that we would together this morning flee from it and once again run unto Christ. This is the weight of the passage that we have before us. Revelation 16. So far we have seen two responses and been introduced uh, to the second, really, of the wrath of God. You recall last week we looked at where God appears on the scene there in verse 1 of chapter 16 and he begins to uh, call forward the angel armies to execute his judgments upon humanity, upon the earth, in a way that is unremarkably, that, that is markedly different than the seal and trumpet judgments. The degree is the bulls are exhaustive. This is the end. The response that came up and out of the pouring out of the bowl judgments, you recall, we saw the one response by the angel who was over the waters, who was executing the judgments of God upon the earth. And in the act of executing the judgment of the Lord, he turned in praise in a difficult scene of men and women 
children being devoured in judgment. He turned and said, Just are you, O oh God. Your judgment is right. In the difficulty of the wrath of God, this is where the Christian confession goes. Just are your ways, O oh God. You are altogether holy and right. This is the response that we saw from the angel. Then we watch the saints as they too rise up and give praise to God. You, the saint, in this great day of judgment, will offer a word of praise. Those who have spilled the blood of your apostles, your people, and your prophets, they now have blood to drink. Just are you, O God, perfect in equity. You remember this really is going back in your mind where you've been with us through the book of Revelation as we began with chapter 1, verse 1. You recall back in chapter 6, in the sealed judgments, you're looking at the sixth seal being broken open by the Lord himself. And there are saints who are gathered under the altar place They have been martyred, their blood has been shed, they have been destroyed in their flesh by the ungodly hosts, and they're under the altar now, this place of sacrifice. And do you remember what they were crying out in the sixth seal? They were crying out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our testimony? How long? We have been ravished by the beast because we spoke of your testimonies. How long, O Lord, until you avenge? And he said there, leading into the seventh seal, just a little while longer. This is human history. This is redemptive history in which you are living a little while longer. Here, in the bold judgments, the exhaustive outpouring of the wrath of God, we see these ones who are under the altar giving praise. You have done as you said. You have avenged our testimony. This is response number one that we see to the saint and to the angels who will execute the judgments of God upon the earth. Praise unto the holiness and justice of God. The second testimony that we just briefly introduced last week was found in verse 8 of chapter 16. And that is, as we come through, after the saints offer praise, we see a direct reversal of the response of the ungodly. The response of the ungodly. You're thinking in your mind, right? Let's just pretend for a moment you forgot the entire sermon from last week. Let's just pretend for a moment. You're thinking now, since you've forgotten last week's sermon... You're now thinking, oh, of course, the ungodly then repented and turned and begged for mercy from the hand of God. That, that's obvious. Of course, that's what took place. As the saints and the angels on the side of Christ rejoice that He is bringing deliverance. The ungodly now, as they are feeling the execution of God's wrath, are repentant and turning to Him and asking, what must we do to be saved? But now, as you're 
mind is remembering last week's sermon just for a brief moment, you realize that is not the response of the ungodly at all. They actually harden. They do what's referenced as double down. They turn and they curse God. It's not the time for repentance. Sin has brought us this far. We only have one pathway to freedom. Double down. They curse God. In the name of him who has the power over the plagues. This second response, as I introduced to you, is where we'll be going this morning, is looking at the response as I encourage the saints. Sin is darker than we think. It's more deadly than we can comprehend as we dabble. It takes you deeper and keeps you longer. To the saint, flee to Christ. To the ungodly who are reveling in it at a moment such as this, I hope this text confronts. And there is repentance. Before, in a sense, you feel there is no other response but to double down. Let's look at the depth of the ungodly response to the wrath of God this morning. If you would, look with me in the text as we follow, beginning in verse 9. I'll read for you, beginning with verse 9 through 16, and we'll come back and make a few brief comments this morning in our time together. Beginning in verse 9, where we pick up, they were scorched by the fierce heat. Do you remember the sun there in verse 8, turned from the beauty and the the joy and uh, the laying out on the beach of which we will all enjoy someday or at some point have enjoyed, and now it is turned with flame, and now they are being scorched. That which we rejoiced over is now an instrument of execution. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they, in response, cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its waters were dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits, something like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Here what we continue to see about the response of the ungodly to the wrath of God. The first thing we recognize about the continued response of the ungodly is they quite simply have a contempt for the power of God. They have a contempt for it. You see in the text there, if you look and draw your attention there in verse 9, 
the reason why they cursed the name of God is precisely because he has the power over these plagues. They will not have him rule over them. It is the power of God. This is not some vague kind of rebuke and this anger that has just vent going everywhere and there is no point at which it is aiming. This is directed at God. They curse Him because He has the power over the plagues. That which they are suffering, He has the power. And they will not have Him rule over them. Do you see the depths of the human condition? Even in direct outpouring of the wrath of God, knowing it is the God of heaven and earth that is pouring it out and executing His judgment, there is a sense in which even in this moment, you will not rule over me. There is no better picture. I can't imagine. This is a kind of my opinion perhaps, but I cannot think of a better text that we have in Holy Scripture than Psalm 2. To be able to really look at this text and be able to see the human condition that has been raging ever since the garden and will continue to rage all the way until the bowls are poured out upon the culmination of redemptive history. If you will, please turn with me to Psalm 2 so that we can look briefly at the human condition that stands against God and says, you will not rule over me. This is the depth of sin, its deceptive power to men and women. Psalm opens up in book one here with the second psalm saying, Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Do you see all of the people by now through verse 1 and verse 2? Nations, all the peoples, all the authorities, and the rulers, everybody takes counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And together, collectively, they say one with another, let us, okay, a collective response, let us reason together, let us come together, and let us together burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth are your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, do you see the appeal now? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
serve the Lord with fear. Do you see the eternal gospel? And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Do you see if you just take a few moments there and you look over Psalm 2 and you see it in its parallel response here in Revelation 16, it is the consistency of the human condition, that of depravity, that looks to the God of heaven and says, you will not rule over me. All of us together have decided you don't fit here. You don't fit here. You can't rule over us. Let us, together, in our feeble sense, come together and let's devise a plan to burst his bond, to cast off his cords. Oh, be wise. Kiss the sun. Lest he be angry. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, perhaps you have heard of him, a great, powerful preacher in the 19th century, once wrote this as he spoke of Psalm 2 in the heart of mankind. He said, to a gracious neck, the yoke of Christ, excuse me, to a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may at this moment judge ourselves by this. Do we love his yoke? Or do we strive to cast it away from us? We think for a moment, again as I plead to you in the introduction, you will not say, let me burst his bond and cast his yoke away from me cast his cords of ruling over me. Let me come up from underneath him and be autonomous and rule my own life. We might not verbalize it and confess it in the heart, but do we display it in our deeds? Is the yoke of Christ in service intolerable to my neck in the church? I think about even broadly speaking an application of kissing the Son, loving Him, following after Him, serving Him, being moved by Him, reading His Word and giving myself to it that I might be transformed into His image. Is that intolerable? Does my neglect prove that it is intolerable? I just would never say it. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Looking at our passage this morning, we continue to witness the wrath of God as it has continued poured out. If you're back in Revelation 16, then you see the wrath of God as it moves. Look in verse 10. It moves upon 
the throne of the beast and his kingdom. The fifth angel poured out his bowl. On the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues into anguish. Here yet again we see the depth of sin. We see its deceptive power. That is the irony here. Do you, do you see it even in just a moment in a cursory reading? The beast and his throne and his kingdom are attacked. Do you see where it's plunged into darkness? Consider the irony of the followers who are cursing God. It is precisely the darkness of the beast and his dominion that drew their hearts to him in the first place. Do you remember the testimony of John who wrote Revelation back in his gospel account in John 3, precisely after he offers us John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that none would perish, but that all would have eternal life. And then He speaks about the human condition. And he says, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they don't want to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. So you see here, the kingdom of the beast is finally attacked. And those who are with him, who are already cursing God, are plunged into darkness. And now the darkness has shifted from a place of hiding and a place of refuge. A place of ease and comfort. We can be hidden here. This is our context for our deeds are evil. And we love the darkness. It hides them from the face of God. But now... The darkness is the wrath of God and there is no comfort in that darkness. That darkness no longer hides. The darkness that has been plunged, forced upon that kingdom is remarkably different. Do you see the response of anguish? I don't know what that exactly is to be quite honest with you. But I think we can both receive the picture that's being presented. This darkness in which they are being plunged by the hand of God is not a comfort, is not a hiding place. It is a place of anguish and despair. The irony that men love the darkness is now come home to judge them in anguish. And they are gnawing their tongues just receive with me. Maybe you have insight. Maybe you've studied this and dug up something I couldn't find on the idea of gnawing their tongues in anguish. Together let us receive. It is an act of wrath and it, darkness is no hiding place. If today the curtains are drawn, the door is locked, nobody's home, I'm in this secret place, is a comfort to you. Look at the text of Scripture. It will be revealed. Darkness and curtains drawn is no true cover for your sin. You're not alone. 
So we see in the wrath of God as darkness is exposed by the wrath of God. Darkness lays hold of the beast and those who follow after him. You see the response. They're gnawing their tongues in anguish in verse 11. And they cursed God. Once again, the uniform response coming from the heart that is depraved and refusing the gospel. They are cursing the God of heaven for the pain and the sores. And they will once again not repent of their deeds. Look at the next portion here as we see now the beast. If you see there in verse 10, the beast is being affected. The followers are being affected. And now, beginning with verse 12, we're going to see together they're going to come together and make a collective response, just like Psalm 2. Let us come together. Bring the rulers together and do counsel. Bring the kings together and let's counsel. Bring the foot soldiers together and let's counsel. Let us counsel together to burst his bonds and to cast him off from us. And here, beginning with verse 12, you see the stage is being set for their counsel and where it's leading them. Look in verse 12 at the stage that's set for the collective response of the beast and his followers against the wrath of God. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Hear about the Euphrates and its role within the book of the Apocalypse. You recall in the sixth trumpet, the Euphrates kind of served as some sort of boundary uh, for wrath. Okay, so you recall uh, in the sixth trumpet there, the four kind of uh, what, what I labeled kind of this um, demonic force is at large in uh, the sixth trumpet there, and you see the release then of these four demonic powers from the river of Euphrates, and they go forward and they begin wreaking havoc, kind of taking that which is chaotic and ratching it up. And the river of Euphrates at that point, they're, they're bound there, and then they are released there to bring about more destruction, more hurt, and more pain. Yet even then, in the release of the demons from this place of the Euphrates, we see that there is some sense of boundary to their wrath. There is only a third of mankind being affected. That is, a word of grace is still present in the seal and trumpet judgments. There is some degree in which we are not all being consumed. That is, not the saints, but the earth at large. Now in the bulls, it's exhaustive. And the picture parallel to the sixth trumpet and what we're seeing here in the bowl being poured out is that which was a boundary of sorts to the wrath, to the demons, is now altogether removed. No boundary exists. The Euphrates, that which served as boundary, is now completely dried up. And it makes the way for the kings of the east. The irony here, once again, is the beast and his followers, as they are going to perceive it, and you're going to see this as the text brings towards our conclusion. The irony here is the beast, as he sees the Euphrates being dried up, this imagery of boundary being removed, and his followers who have come and taken counsel together, they see it 
as they perceive, the protection of the church has been removed. Score. This is step one in breaking his bonds. This is casting off his cords that bind us. We'll get rid of the church. Do you remember this is seen as the first events in chapter 11 where the collective witness of the church is being under attack and it is almost utterly destroyed. But it isn't. Yet the striving of the serpent's seed seeks to demolish and devour the church. And so here, let us come, let us take counsel, let us gather together. Our kingdom has been plunged into darkness and we are in utter pain. How will we get a pathway to freedom? Devour the church. Kill God. Yet it isn't that protection for the church has been removed. The patience of God has run out. They're marching into the plain. Let's say that the river Euphrates is now dried up and it's created a battlefield of sorts. And what is perceived as the protection around the church has been removed. They are now ready to be devoured. But it isn't the protection that's been removed. It's the peace and the patience of God has been removed. And they foolhardily rush headlong into the battlefield, thinking victory is imminent. We'll finally be free from him who possesses the power over the plagues. Only to find out they are rushing headlong into their own damnation. The stage is set in their minds. Only that he who possesses the power over the plagues has removed it for his own purposes. And that is the destruction of the ungodly, all who follow the beast. How is it, though? We have to ask, right? How is it that the beast is going to somehow get these people to gather together and war against God? How is it going to occur? Let's step back from that final question and let me ask you, How does sin approach you in your own life? It offers a sweetness. It promotes itself as a balm that soothes, as a release from anxiety and pressure. In a way, offers you promise that you feel you can't find elsewhere. The writer of Proverbs speaks of the deceptive power of sin this way. As we'll watch, the beast will indeed deceptively bring the nations together to wage war against God. The writer of Proverbs speaks about the voice, the subtlety of sin this way. Her lips drip with honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. 
In other words, sin has consequences. You'll experience the double-edged sword in your marriage when you give yourself to pornography. You'll experience the brokenness financially when you give yourself to the oil of materialism. Sin has consequence. And it doesn't come and scream to each of us, This is sin! And I'm anti-God. I'm anti-Christ. I'm fueled by the dragon and the power of the beast, the subtlety of the false prophet, and I'm wooing you right now. I think each of us have scars to prove that that's not the case. So Christ offers us a word, and we'll get there just in a moment. But you now sympathize, do you not, with those outside the gospel? You have an empathy because you recognize sin is deceptive. And they're being manipulated within their own constitution and their own depravity. They're being led astray. And it's deceptive. Look at how it works in the text in our closing moments together. Look at you see here. That's fine, Liam. Don't worry. So you look at the text here and we see verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth. Look at here it comes. It comes to the kings. It comes to the counselors. It comes to the rulers. It comes to the nations and the peoples. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Here is as I have addressed to you before. The dragon, the beast and the prophet. As they function through the book of Revelation as an unholy trinity of sorts. Three unclean spirits like frogs come from them. They're demonic spirits and look at what they're doing. They're performing signs which go abroad to the kings of the whole world. Everybody's invested in this false word. Everybody. And it's working and provoking and manipulating people to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. This is the pathway of sin. It manipulates and provokes wickedness upon its participants. It deceives. And it deceives so bad as we say, sin is just kind of small to us. I wanted to encourage you this morning about it's deeper and it's darker than you're grasping. Look here. It is leading people through darkness, through lie, through deceit, through provocation to believe. Can you conceptualize to actually finally believe we can kill God? We can burst his bonds. The creature can say to the creator, come down here. We will break your bonds. Right? We're all saying, this is impossible to fathom in this text, right? And we all bear that burden of thinking, is this Lord of the Rings or something? Is this some sort of fantastical expression that there's no way this is true? People will actually believe or buy into, come together through wicked counsel, be so deceived that they can kill God? 
Yes. Yes. Sin is not something small. Look to the cross of Christ. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Actively obeyed his Father. Obeyed the law for you, the lawbreaker. Laid down his life. Suffered your execution to be raised for your justification. Now think, is sin something small? It is overwhelmingly powerful. The comment there on frogs, the spirits like frogs, I know we all right now are sharing the same mental picture. We've done this a number of times throughout the book and we're all seeing someone speak and we're seeing frogs dive out of, like, spirits. The word there on like frogs, it's critical as we've handled all the way through the book where it says they are like. It's important that we just rest there. They're like that. Better than assigning as we begin to draw the apocalypse when we go home, we're drawing the frogs coming out. Better to step back and say he's speaking of a vision and he's helping us conceptualize what he's viewing. And he's associating their words, their, their, their manipulative speech like frogs. Why like frogs is maybe the next question. There are two good reasons, neither of which I'm 100% sure, so I offer them both to you and you can meditate upon them and see which one you would think. But uh, uh, there is, and somewhat they're linked. One, we can think of the picture of frogs as perhaps it is they are loud. If any of you have windows that are open, perhaps in the summertime, if you've had any experience with that, my grandfolks live in Alabama, and it can be a bit obnoxious at night if your window is open and you have some water laying around somewhere, and there they go. Maybe it is a bit in which this picture of frogs is they are loud, They will be heard, but they're really empty. There's nothing actually going on. So it is with false content. It seems loud, it seems forceful, it seems strong, but in the end, it's actually accomplishing nothing. Yet, so there's one layer there of like frogs speaking of their speech as being convincing, yet in the end, is really offering you nothing. It is simply empty speech. Another concept that somewhat unites to that as well as some of you with the book of Exodus, you remember that throughout the book of Revelation, we have really in many ways again and again seen these parallel stories working together uh, with Christ here in the middle as we look at Egypt and the Exodus of Israel and we watch their journey in the wilderness and we see the challenges that they face, we see the redemption that was brought, we see the exaltation of Christ in chapter 5 and yet we watch the church after after the exaltation of Christ, somewhat the numbers being parallel to Israel's journey. The challenges that the church is facing are not altogether unique. They're shared with the challenges Israel faced. The plagues that we see being poured out are similar plagues that we've seen in Israel's journey in the Egyptian exodus, and so too here with the frogs. In Exodus 8, verse 7, uh, you remember the plague of the frogs that Moses brought by the hand of God upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. But then you remember the magicians, the sorcerers, 
who they too, in Exodus 8, verse 7, mimic the work of God by calling forth frogs upon the land. So it is, once again, like frogs, maybe unites us in harmony to that vision that it is deceptive. It seems powerful. The persuasion in their voice seems commanding, but in the end, it's false. And here, the unholy trinity is offering humanity a way forward. Psalm 2. Let us come. Let us plot together. Let us show you signs and wonders leading you into the battle. Here's your pathway to freedom. Go to war with God. So calloused, so hardened, so provoked, so deceived, so angry, the lie takes root. They double down. They curse the name of God and they come for battle. I now conclude with you my last question. And that is, if we think in modern terms, how is it that the kings of the world or the rulers of the world or the rulers of the world or the nations of the peoples, how is it that so many people will hear this message, will see these signs, will be a part of this deception? How is it occurring now? To the saint, I ask, how is it occurring now? I think of three Three ways in which this is already occurring and will in great climax occur in the future as we see right here in Revelation 16 with the Lord's return. Three ways in which it's occurring right now. If we look at the book of Revelation, we see one right to the letters of the churches, false teachers. False teachers in the church. Men who stand behind pulpits. Right now I'm not behind it. I've come around to the side. Men who stand behind pulpits and distort the gospel. Men who preach freedom in a manner that, again, fueled by the false prophet, appears to be Christianity, but is ultimately antichrist. Look at the church. We think that's not going to happen in the church, right? The soldiers will be gathered by way of false teachers, fueled by the beast. How was it occurring in the first century? Church at Thyatira, Jezebel was there. She was saying that it was okay for you guys to fornicate and saying immorality, God understands. And Christ came to the church and said, kick her out. False teachers is one way in which the church, those who hide in the church, don't truly love Christ, gathered unto him by the gospel, will be led astray through false teachers saying their church, twisting and distorting the gospel. Secondly, I think of another way in which mass audiences will be reached with an anti-Christ message that deceives and calluses the heart into an anti-Christ disposition. Entertainment industry. I can't help but to think about it. I mean, you live where I live. We watch television and it's on at the house. Take a moment and kind of wrap your mind around the way in which, just, just take a moment and think. 
through the medium of television, how many people are reached at one time. And think about then the message that's being sent through the television into our homes. Vice has become virtue. There's, there, there, there's moral uprightness in immorality. It, it pulls the heart to cheer for the one who is destructive. Just meditate there. How will people be reached? And I'm not at all wanting you to come over to my house tonight and let's have a TV breaking fire and you know, throw them into my backyard in a big heap. I'm not proposing that. I'm asking for Christian discernment. I trust here by Christ displaying it. I think of the third thing, just in, in conclusion, how false rhetoric will callous the heart and lead to an ungodly disposition to where at which a man will stand and say, I am a creature and he is a creator and he will not rule over me. I will war against him. How will that be achieved? I think even now it is currently being achieved and we are being deceived even through the place of what it says right there in the text, world leaders. Godless law. Being persuaded, moved, and then forced upon people. And again, maybe we're saying, not in America, not in this way. And then maybe some of us right now are saying, yeah, exactly, right here, right now. Wherever we step back and we recognize the text of Scripture is indicating how will masses of people be reached with an antichrist disposition where godless law becomes second nature. Let us burst his bonds. Let us cast off his cords. But we plot in vain against him. Psalm 2. To this word to the church then, this is my final comment for us this morning. I want to end with the promise of the text for you and I in a difficult age, a difficult age of world leaders. I mean, look at Syria. The church of Christ is there. There's, there, there's believers there. Look at world leaders keep going to China. We discussed that with a brother earlier. There's believers there. Think of Iran. Think of all that's taking place in the Middle East. We just look and see a difficult age. And we read a text like this and we feel the weight of difficulty. This is right where the gospel comes and gives great strength. Look by faith with me at verse 15 as we end our word of promise as Christ comes to the church. Verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief to the church. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is the blessedness of Christ as he comes, the image there of he who stays awake. He who is keeping his clothes on is he who is following the lamb wherever he goes. The picture there is one who is dressed in garment, arraigned with Christ. Blessed is this individual who believes I am coming, finds himself clothed, and is not pursuing darkness with nakedness that his deeds would be exposed. 
Blessed is the church of Christ. Clothed with Christ at his appearing. Let's pray. Father, I think of this text. I pray the saints today.